you have your Bibles, please open uh, to Acts chapter 6. Um, we are, we're looking at Stephen and his story over a, a few weeks here. Um, and we're in verses 8 through 15 today. Uh, we'll start with verse 8 up on the screen, but I'm actually going to go back and read verse 7 as well to remind us of, of where we just were. So this won't be on the screen, but we'll, we'll catch up right here in verse 8. It says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So now we're in verse 8. And Stephen full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and those of uh, or Cilicia uh, and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So Stephen is a very interesting part of Acts. We're just a handful of chapters in here, and we're introduced to Stephen, and almost as quickly we're done with Stephen. Uh, we just have two chapters, chapter 6 and 7, with Stephen. Uh, chapter 7, which we'll get to next week, is the longest speech recorded in Acts. It's, it's Stephen's speech before the council, and it's the speech that will ultimately get him killed. So Luke, why why did you think we needed to know about Stephen? Well, there's multiple answers to that question. Here's just a, a few. Um, he is the first person to be martyred for his faith. He's the first in a long, long line that continues to this day of people who, uh, who die for their faith in Jesus. The second is uh, that we see the, the, this persecution really is what scatters the early church. And at face value, that might seem like a really bad result. But pretty quickly here in Acts, I think you'll pick up on this with me, that we see God's design here, that, that he is moving the gospel, the good news, beyond Jerusalem towards the ends of the earth. And then the third is I think Stephen, his story directly challenges uh, two myths or two uh, errors in our thinking that I suspect are common for most or maybe even all Christians, uh, at least at some point in your faith, if not throughout your faith. So here, here are those two errors. The first is, uh, I won't face what Jesus faced. Right? If, I, if I trust in Jesus, I'm not going to have to face what Jesus faced. And the second is, if I'm called to suffer, I won't be able to stand up for Christ. So what we know of Stephen so far for verse 5 is that he is a, a man full of faith. He's full of the Holy Spirit. Verse 8 in our passage this week tells us that he's also full of grace and power. He's doing signs and wonders among the people. You might remember from last week that Stephen 
and uh, six others were chosen to serve widows in the early church, in particular these widows that had been neglected. And it was a problem in the early church. So they're serving widows, but they're not just uh, dropping off food for them. They are ministering to these widows. They're certainly finding out how they're doing. They're checking in with them. I guarantee that Stephen and these others were praying with these widows as they met with them, encouraging them with the truth of the gospel. We'll see this especially next week in chapter 7. But Stephen is a person that was always ready to talk about Jesus. He loved Jesus. He was ready at any opportunity to witness uh, to who Jesus is. Um, so he, he, was, he was ready to go for it at all times. And, and he, was in, he was even ready to be martyred for standing up for Jesus. So let's think about this first myth that we won't face what Jesus faced. Uh, one way that Christianity is so often uh, Americanized is the belief that we really won't go through much conflict once we decide to trust in Jesus. That, that yes, there will be bumps in life, but, um, but we just think this way as Americans, that, that our life should be pretty easy, that it should be pretty smooth. And, and, and as Christians, maybe part of this comes from uh, the influence of the prosperity gospel in uh, America. Where, we, uh, where, where Jesus is treated more as a genie rather than our Lord. Um, that God is here to really make life for us pretty easy and, and give us all the things that we really want in life. The whole uh, just name it and claim it thing. But Jesus paints a much different reality for his people. When you decide to follow Jesus, we are signing up for conflict. Uh, and I say conflict because I don't just mean persecution. We'll, we'll talk about persecution in a moment. But as a Christian, uh, there's a conflict that every believer faces within themselves because we have, we have changed our allegiance from the world uh, to Jesus, to, to our, our new Lord and Master. Paul describes it like this in Ephesians. He says, before Christ, you lived in the passions of your flesh. You lived for the things that your flesh wanted, the ways of this world. And he says that you were by nature children of wrath. That's how we chose to identify. But then he says, but God, being rich in mercy, saved you because of his great love. In Colossians, he puts it this way. He says that you were in the domain of darkness before Christ. And then he transferred you into the kingdom of his son. He brought you out of the darkness into the kingdom that has no darkness and is full of light. And this transfer, while it's instantaneous, we know that in this life, we still deal with our flesh, right? We, we had this palate, we had taste buds for the world, for the things of the world, for, for sin, for making idols out of anything that we could. But God in his grace is changing that palate. And it's a battle. You know that, that there is conflict as God is growing you and changing you to be more and more like his son, there's this conflict. And, and we experience that when we come to the word, right? As we get in the word, God is sanctifying us through scripture. He's shaping us. He's molding us. And that's good. And at times, it's also really uncomfortable. At times, it's painful, so maybe some of you are feeling that conflict right now in Acts. Actually, I hope all of us are feeling that conflict as we're in Acts each and every week. You see the early church 
And the Holy Spirit's convicting you in different ways. Maybe for some, the conflict is seeing these Christians and just how bold they were, right? In the face of whatever, they're bold for Jesus. And you're thinking, That's, I want that, but, but I also want to be comfortable, right? There's conflict. The Holy Spirit is working in you. Or maybe the conflict is just seeing how dependent the early church was on the Lord through prayer, right? When there's an issue, what do we see from them? They pray together. They're before the Lord all the time asking for his help, for him to give them strength, for him to give them words. And I'm sure that for some of us, that's conflict because most of us, probably all of us, are wired to figure out the solution and then ask the Lord to bless it. But this is what God does in the lives of his people. He's, he's changing those taste buds. He's changing our palate, so to speak. He's forming us. He's shaping us. And while that is good, it's also hard. It can be quite painful at times, but we are learning to live for God and not for the falsehoods that we used to chase. Matthew 16, 24, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And maybe you're like me. I wanna follow I want to follow Jesus, but, but I want to make it into this, this light matter, right? L-I-T-E. I, I want Christianity light. I want the, the free version that has most of the features, the important ones, but no cost. And that's not how Christianity works. Jesus doesn't leave room for that in how he talks to his people and how he instructs us, right? He isn't saying, yeah, pick up that beautiful metal cross that's around your neck on your necklace. No, he's saying, pick up this instrument of shame, this instrument of torture, this instrument of death and follow me, right? This is what you carry around. The cross is what identifies you. It, it reminds you not just that he died for you, but in following him that you have died as well. You've died to living for sin and self. You've died to your former ways and it is by being crucified with Christ that we have life. He says his followers will, will lose their life to find it. And somehow we twist those words to mean, oh, I can follow Jesus and pursue all these other things that I want to. Um, I don't often use The Simpsons for an illustration, but there is a perfect scene with Homer. If you don't know of The Simpsons, you're probably blessed. Um, but there's this scene where Homer Simpson, he's a total idiot. Um, he, uh, he's got one arm up a, a soda vending machine and it's stuck and, and another arm up another vending machine uh, getting like a candy bar or something. And he can't get out, right? And so they call for help and, and they're trying to figure out like, we can't get you out of here. And, and they're, they're about to amputate his arms, right? And, um, and, and someone that's, that's been trying to assess the problem says, wait, Homer, are you just holding on to that soda? Like if you let go, you'll be free. And, and, and there's no words, but there's this inner conflict in Homer's dumb little face. Like he, he doesn't want to let go. He wants the, the soda, he wants the candy bar, and he wants to be free from that vending machine, but he couldn't bring himself to do it. He was trapped. And, and while we've given ourselves to Christ, there's still this battle, this battle to let go of our sinful ways that we used to love. Right? And I'm not saying that like if you're, if you're a musician before Christ and then you meet Jesus, then you stop playing music. But no, you, you no longer live 
for that. You don't live for the passions that you used to live for, right? And, and, and it wouldn't be surprising at all in that example if, if Christ then changes that passion for music and uses it for his kingdom. But there's no holding on to this life, the things that we lived for before Christ. When we follow Jesus, we, we say goodbye to those former allegiances. One way experience uh, difficulty is, is the conflict within us, and praise God for that conflict, but there, there is more. Right? Let's read some of the ways that Jesus prepared his followers for when he would leave to return to the Father. This is from John 15, 19. It says, uh, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So there's conflict as believers with this world. We worship the risen savior who had to die on the cross for our sins. And as the apostle Paul said, the message of the gospel, the message of the cross is offensive. It's offensive to this world. We see the cross and we see God's great love for sinners. We're, we don't even understand how he could love us enough to lay down his life for us, but the world will not accept that they need a sacrifice on their behalf. So the message of the good news will not be taken by all as good news, though some will. And in so much of the world, what we see is Christians dying for their faith. We see Christians persecuted for their faith. We hear about people coming to Christ, and the moment they do, their family uh, kicks them out, or, or, or they lose their jobs or their businesses, um, or we hear of Christians that are beaten or arrested. We hear of Christians whose homes are burnt to the ground. We've heard of churches that are, that are bombed or, um, or, or set on fire. For the last 10 years or so, on average, there have been 90,000 Christians martyred for their faith each year. And that's a hard number to nail down. Um, I mean, they're, they're estimating it, and it's hard to get that number right. But let's say the number's way less than that. Let's say it's even just 60,000. That is a ton of brothers and sisters in Christ that are dying for their faith every year. And we have to understand that the Western world is an outlier when it comes to persecution. Um, persecution at the moment in the West is different. And, and it's, it's kind of hard for me to talk about persecution in the West because I almost feel disrespectful to the persecuted church um, as they face I mean, they face violence unlike we do. And the levels of violence of, against Christians, it's, it's different. But it's foolish to say that Christians don't have enemies in the West. I'm sure you have met some that truly just hate Christians. Uh, they hate everything that we believe. They hate that, that we would claim that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And it, it doesn't matter how nice you are. It doesn't matter what a good coworker you are or a good neighbor you are. The cross is a true offense to them. And this will only ramp up in our part of the world in the coming years and decades. I was talking with uh, David, our global partner in India. He was here uh, a few weeks ago. Last week we got together and he was, uh, we talked about a lot of things, but one of the things we were talking about was 
persecution. And, and he was explaining one aspect that I, I think I'd heard of before in India, but I, I, even after hearing it, it's hard for me to wrap my brain around this. But when uh, a person from India trusts in Jesus, uh, and, and then at some point they get baptized, they have to change, uh, I won't get this technically right, but like their religious affiliation on this, this legal document with the government. And the moment they do that, they, they lose uh, all sorts of uh, societal rights and privileges. And there's no way uh, around changing this document. They have to declare that they've decided to follow Jesus. And in a moment, there's an instant cost for these believers. 2 Timothy 3.11 says, My persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, which uh, persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He testifies, the Lord rescued me over and over again. But it's that last line there that always gets me. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Everyone that, that, that desires to live a godly life will face persecution and I come across that verse, and I go, man, do I face any form of persecution? And I have, to, I have to think, well, if Paul's saying that that will happen, and I'm not experiencing that, am I living out my faith in this world? Or am I only doing it where, where I feel safe uh, among believers? When you give yourself to Christ, you are falling in the footsteps of Jesus. Stephen did that. In verse 8, it describes him as being filled with grace and power. And and certainly these two words, these descriptive words, remind me at least of Jesus. His grace and power were on full display throughout his ministry as he healed people. Uh, His grace and power were demonstrated in in all the conversations that he had with people, especially I I think of people that had nothing to do with with going to to the synagogue or the temple, people that were notorious sinners. Man, he was full of grace and power, certainly on the cross. And this is how Stephen is described too. He's one that's filled with grace, filled with power. These signs and wonders are no doubt miracles, Um, performed uh, by the Spirit through Stephen. And this causes trouble in the synagogue. Uh, People from the local synagogues, they had heard about Stephen. Stephen had a reputation, and they're looking around and realizing that thousands are joining this, this new religion, following Jesus. All these people, including priests that we read about in verse 7, uh, they're, they're trusting in Jesus. They're joining this new group, and, and the people from these synagogues are livid. They're mad. This threatens the temple, which I'm sure we, don't, we can't understand how much money came to Jerusalem just because the temple was there. People traveling in at different times of the year for different festivals, people traveling in to, to have sacrifices made for them. They're spending all kinds of money on, on food and lodging. If all these people stop coming to the temple, this is a big deal. I'm sure there are a number of reasons that they confronted Stephen, but they they decide to confront him, right? They're ready for a fight. They argue with this guy who claims that Jesus is the Messiah. And they wouldn't have confronted Stephen if they hadn't heard that he just talks and talks and talks 
about Jesus. This guy just won't shut up about Jesus. He's one of the people that's convincing all these Jews to, to follow Jesus, so he must be stopped. But what we read is they couldn't hang with him. Right? They couldn't hang with the wisdom that God had given Stephen. Well, it's because the Spirit is speaking through Stephen. And I'll say it again in a little bit, but don't be enamored in this story, this week or next week, with Stephen. Right? The Holy Spirit is the hero in this story. It's the Spirit that gives Stephen courage. It's the Spirit that gives Stephen wisdom. It's the spirit that, that did the miracles through Stephen. It's the spirit, as we'll read next week in chapter 7, that gives him the words. So what, what do they do since they can't match the wisdom? What do they do since they can't make a solid counter-argument? Well, in verses 11 through 14, they drum up some false witnesses. They, they, they find people to talk about him. They say things like, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Right? This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place. We've heard him say that Jesus will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So they took these sound bites, these things that I'm, things I'm sure he did say, and, and, and they twist them and they take them out of context to accuse Jesus. They put a spin on it that's just a little bit off but sounds true, right? And we see this all the time today. We see this in the news. We see this on social media. They accuse Stephen of speaking blasphemy against Moses and God, which the order cracks me up there. Like I would think you would lead with, he speaks blasphemy against God and Moses as well. But, but they, they're, they're coming at him with, with whatever they can find. They claim that he spoke against the law, that, that Jesus would destroy the temple. And we've seen this playbook before, right? This is what they did to Jesus. And Luke, in these two chapters, we see the, the comparison that he's making here between Stephen and Jesus. Um, both of them were put on trial before the Sanhedrin. Both were accused by false witnesses. Both were accused of being against the temple. Both made references to the temple made with hands. Both were charged with blasphemy. Both were questioned by the high priest. Both commit their spirit at death. Both cry out with a loud shout at death. Both intercede for their enemies. Man, Stephen looks a whole lot like Jesus. Back in verse 10, it said they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And, and like I just said, we're, we're tempted to look at Stephen and go, man, he is awesome. Like he is the super Christian. And yes, his trust in God was great. His willingness to face persecution is stunning. But all of that is because of the spirit within Stephen, the Holy Spirit. God is the hero of this story. It's not Stephen. God took a normal person, right, like you and like me, and gave him courage to stand, gave him the words to speak that, so that none of these people could argue against him, right? And we think about how powerful these words were, and we'll see this next week, but his words came with such power that they couldn't argue against him, and the only option that made sense in all of their brains is, we have to kill this man. That is how powerfully at work God was in Stephen. And we're fools to think that we will not face hardship as believers in, in, in any number of forms. But we're just as foolish to think that it, it's on us to drum up 
courage to stand up for Jesus, that it's on us to figure out how to be compelling Christians. It's on us to figure out the words to speak that cannot be refuted. No, God will give us what it takes to stand up for him, to testify about how great our God is. Luke 12, 11, it says, and when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourselves or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Don't worry. Don't be anxious. And this isn't saying don't study your Bible. It's not telling us to not memorize scripture or or study apologetics, which which is uh, how to defend your faith. No, it's not saying those things are bad. Those those are good things, but it's, it's the Spirit that we need to be dependent on. It's the spirit that, that is empowering the believer to speak about Jesus. It's a spirit that, that we need to, to trust in and not on our well-crafted arguments. Uh, this verse won't be up on the screen, but this is Luke 21, 14. Jesus says, settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth uh, and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. There's that saying, think before you speak. And that's a good saying. Most of us would do well to put that into practice this week. But here, Jesus says almost the opposite. He he tells us that it is God that will give us the wisdom and the truth that we need to speak to enemies of the gospel. He's the one who enables us to speak. We don't need to fret over exactly how we're going to say it. No, it is God who will speak through us. And maybe you've had that friend uh, or a coworker or maybe even a a family member that just loves to, to try and poke holes in your faith. They, they love to tease and taunt you. And, and maybe you find yourself like regularly concentrating on, okay, how do I, how do I answer this potential argument if they bring this thing up? Or, or how, do I, how do I say this to them about scripture instead of being confident in the Holy Spirit? I had a really good friend that at one time we actually went to church together. For several years, we went to the same church. And, and, and then over the years, um, he, he became an atheist, or I should say he, he wants to be an atheist. He, he tries to be an atheist. And he's a really, really smart guy. I mean, way smarter than me. He literally has a PhD in philosophy. He's a professor at a college uh, out east. So I I know without a doubt that I can't out-argue my friend. I mean, I've known him for a couple decades now. There's no way I'm out-arguing this guy. And yet more times than I can count, God has given me words that, that they've just like, pierced my friend's soul, just, just shaken him to his core. And sometimes it's a question, sometimes it's a statement, sometimes it's, it's, it's the right verse at the right time, or sometimes I've seen God not even use me, I just get to see what he's doing. He's, he's used circumstances in my friend's life that my friend you know, had no control over. Or one time he, he told me that it was, it was a story on NPR as he was driving through the gorge that, that, that just he had to confront what he, he thinks about God, what he, what he says he believes about God. He'll, he said things to me like, I want God to be real, 
where he talks about reading the Bible. He actually knows his Bible pretty darn well. And he, he says, I read about Jesus and I want those things that scripture says to be true about him. But there, there's something, my friend, that he is resistant. Like he, he, he will not let himself believe you. He isn't believing in Christ. But man, I've stopped being afraid of what I will say to him because I've just seen God time after time after time give me words or, or do things in my friend's life that clearly it's God working on his heart. I've seen it so many times that I, I'm just not worried about it with him anymore. And praise God when, when we aren't confident in ourselves, not in our intellect, not in our bravery, not in all the life experiences that we have had, now, we ought to be confident in God. It's in the Holy Spirit that, that we should place our confidence who indwells every believer so that when he gives us opportunities to talk about him, he'll also come in power. He will, he will give us the words. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, this is uh, a verse I just love. Paul says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And it is good to be weak. As a believer, recognizing your weakness is a great place to be. God loves using weak people to show his power to demonstrate his glory, to proclaim his love. Verse 15 in our passage says, And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And we've got to be with Jesus. We've got to spend time with Christ in order to be transformed by him. So the question of well, how do we prepare? We prepare by walking with Jesus. By, by living our lives, following after Christ. Stephen's face looked like an angel. And this flashes me back to Moses' face when his face, it says it, it, it shone, right? It glowed. Not like, not like beautiful pregnant mama glow. No, this is like freak people out glow, right? Like Moses, you're scaring all of us, cover up your face kind of glow. And, and Moses looked like that because he was with God. Stephen looked like he had the face of an angel because he was with Jesus. He loved Jesus. He was pouring over the word. And the few months before this, for the first time in his life, he's just seen Jesus throughout Scripture. No doubt he was praying to Jesus. He was meeting with Jesus all the time. So the prep to stand up for Jesus as a faithful witness is to be with Jesus. Right, true fellowship with Jesus, not, not just like a Sunday drive-by, not just verse of the day. Those things are fine, but this is regular time with the Lord in his word, fellowshipping with his people, because we will face opposition to the gospel, which means that we will have opportunities to trust in the Holy Spirit, to stand up and be a witness to Jesus. So as our culture is changing, how, how do we respond? How do we respond to a culture that doesn't tolerate the Bible anymore? Uh, how do we respond to a world that calls the Bible even immoral? Right? Do, we, do we keep our heads down and, and just try to live life without rocking the boat? That doesn't work. 
I think as Christians in America, we've been doing that for a long time. Or do we swing the, the other way, right? Not just avoid conflict, but since that's not working, let's start conflict, right? Let's get megaphones and, and sandwich boards. That's not the answer either. Um, no, Stephen, he, he, shows us, he shows us the way. He, he doesn't avoid conflict at all. And we'll see that next week, but he isn't looking for it either. I heard someone put it this way. He said, Stephen's path is, is one of cheerful defiance. He wrote, if we are reviled, we will not revile in return. If the world hates us, we will continue to love. We will not stop serving. We will not stop worshiping. We will not stop singing. We will not stop sacrificing or speaking of our Lord or speaking of the gospel. We will not be belligerent. We will not be mean, but we will not stop. We will be cheerful. We will be joyful. We will not stop. We will not stop speaking about Jesus. Let me close with this from 1 Peter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we confess that you are our Lord. You are our Savior. There is no way to be reconciled with God the Father but through your sacrifice on the cross. And Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you willingly laid down your life for us, that you rose from the dead, that you've ascended to be with the Father, that you're going to return to get all your people. Jesus, in the meantime, God, would you help us to be a people that live for you? Would you help us to be a people that, that understand the trials are coming, the understanding that people will, will hate the message of the gospel and even hate us for aligning ourselves with you? Lord, we can't stand up on our own. We need you. So Holy Spirit, we are so grateful that you are with us, that you are in us that it is your power that will give us the courage. It's your power and wisdom that will give us the words to testify to you. Lord, would you help us in that? It's in your name we pray. Amen.